from Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network at USA Today. This is the Trojans Wired Podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Zemick and Ian Hest. Welcome to the latest episode of Trojans Wired, the podcast, which is an in-house production of the website Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network. This is Matt Zemick, your host, along with my co-host and producer, Ian Hest, and uh, USC basketball just continues to raise the bar. It's such an exciting month uh, in college basketball with March now upon us, but uh, it's also a really exciting time because of what USC is doing on the court. And the fascinating conversation that Ian and I are going to have on USC basketball is we're going to go in a few different directions. But one of the things we're going to talk about is this team just doesn't seem to get the big national splash. It doesn't seem to get the credit or the appreciation for what it's doing. And there are lots of reasons for that. I think the main thing is, is that Arizona, you know, is a possible number one seed. Uh, almost certain to be the Pac-12 champion. Now, you know, when you listen to this podcast, everybody, we're recording this before USC's game on March 1st against Arizona. So, you know, when you listen to this podcast, you already know the result of that USC-Arizona game. But tossing that aside, let's say that USC beats Arizona and you're listening to this after USC beats Arizona. Even if that's the case, Arizona finishes with Stanford and Cal at home, like those are a couple of layups for the Wildcats. So even with a lost USC, if the, if that is the case, Arizona might have beaten USC. But but we're just going through this hypothetical because Ian and I don't yet know the result of that USC Arizona game. Uh, even if USC beats Arizona, the Wildcats are going to win their last two games and they're going to clinch the Pac-12 anyway. So you know when you don't win the conference, that's one reason why USC is getting overshadowed. Uh, also, another reason is, you know, USC swept the Oregon schools in Corvallis against Oregon State, in Eugene uh, against uh, uh, the Oregon Ducks. So, you know, USC had a 2-0 and road trip. UCLA went 1-1. and UCLA lost to Oregon before beating Oregon State. But UCLA beat Oregon State by 39 points, 94-55. USC won in double overtime, you know, against a very bad team. So even though USC goes 2-0 and UCLA goes 1-1, which is really what matters, are you winning, are you losing, because UCLA just dropped the hammer against Oregon State by nearly 40 points, people walk away and say, oh, well, UCLA is still the higher-end team. UCLA is still the team with with the very elevated ceiling. USC is just kind of here mucking around, winning games by one or two points. So USC doesn't look quite as sexy, uh, and that's why part of why the Trojans get overshadowed is that they don't dominate teams, but they win and they win and they win. <laughs> They're twenty five and four. They become the first USC team to win twenty five regular season games ever. And let's realize that 1971 USC went 24 and two, but didn't play in the postseason. That's the best USC team of all time. 
Uh, it didn't make the Final Four, though, because the NCAA tournament was just 25 teams in 1971. You didn't have at-large bids from conferences. It was just the conference champion. So in the 1971 Pacific 8 conference, as it was back then, Arizona and Arizona State made, made the Pac-8, the Pac-10 in 1978. Uh, you know, you had this guy, uh, you, you might remember him, John Wooden, yeah, at UCLA. And he stood in USC's way. USC's only two losses in that 71 season were against the Bruins, who won the Pac-8, went to the NCAA tournament, won a national title, which they did every year in those days. UC, UCLA uh, won seven straight NCAA national titles from 1967 through 1973. So USC's best team was in the middle of that uh, UCLA dynasty. Another great USC team went 24 and five in 1974. Also ran into John Wooden, also lost to the Bruins in the Pacific Eight Conference. So this USC team doesn't have the, the bona fides of those early 1970s teams, but still, still 25 and four, it just, it just speaks for itself. And here's the other thing that we have to note. 25 and four without Evan Mobley and Taj Eady. Okay. So like the, imagine if this team, this roster had each of those two players, USC would have been the kind of team which would compete for a number one, number two seed in the NCAA tournament. So for Andy Enfield to lose Evan Mobley and Taj Eady, and then come back and go 25 and four and win 14 Pac-12 games, 15 if they can win either against Arizona or UCLA. Uh, the Trojans are seven and two on the road in the Pac-12. They're nine and one in games decided by five points or fewer without Evan Mobley and Tajidi. It's an absolutely phenomenal season. It's an absolutely tremendous coaching job from Enfield. And it definitely sustains and builds a brand after last season's Elite Eight run. You look at the team USC beat last Thursday, Oregon State. That's the exact opposite of how you build on an Elite Eight run. Oregon State hasn't won a game in 2022, only three total wins on the season. And here you have USC with 25 wins, only four losses. And, you know, so USC's getting overshadowed, Ian Hest, because of the close wins. but. When you keep winning, you know, it, 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 and you, you're just pulling out wins left and right all the time, it ceases to be a fluke. Like, that's your identity if you keep doing it over and over and again. So it, it really is fascinating how USC and Andy Enfield don't get national credit, but they're doing what you're supposed to do each time you take the court. They win, right? Yeah, I still can't seem to understand it Every time that I watch USC play, I always am saying to myself, this team is better than how everybody talks about it. And I, I really love that you didn't even mention, I, I don't think in that entire thing, Drew Peterson, who's playing fantastic lately. Um, like th this is a team that's very well-rounded, very balanced. And they don't like we, we talked last year about how much Evan Mobley meant to this team, but this year it, Isaiah, you mentioned all the injuries. He's been in and out. Like, it's not even necessary because his team has parts, like you said, in building this roster 
where they can find ways to win, even if it it doesn't need to be pretty, but it needs to be a W. The 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 we talked earlier in the year about that thirteen and zero run to start the year, and oh, is this really real? Is this a fluke? Is it you know just the 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 benefit of a terrible schedule? Well, then we sort of were a little nervous when they plundered in that middle with that five and four run. Now it's six wins in a row. And I really think it's about time to start talking about USC as one of those bubble, like not bubble, but like bracket buster type teams that could be a five or a six that makes a deep run. They just look very mature in, in especially in late game situations, especially when times get tough. You mentioned Oregon State. That game was a disaster. They were playing terrible, and yet they found a way to win. Oregon gave them their best punch after already beating them earlier in the season, and yet USC was was calm, composed, and they realized, no, we we can get this done. And like you said, credit to Andy Enfield, because this is a team that, that is wise above their years right now, and they're playing like it. It doesn't need to be those you know, 30-point Big 12 wins that we're seeing left and right going on all over the place. It doesn't need to be the big upset against Arizona that's coming up, although that would be very nice. It, it, but it's a, it's a consistency that you can rely on that, that really is the impressive part for me at, at the forefront about this team. Absolutely. You, you look at what USC has done in its last three games, and again, we're, we're not – counting the Arizona game, even though, again, as you listen to this podcast, the Arizona result will be known uh, by the time you listen to this show. But the USC's previous three games uh, in a seven-day stretch, or the week from uh, Sunday, February 20th through Saturday, February 26th, three games in those seven days, USC on the 20th comes back from seven down with about 11 minutes left to beat Washington State on the Boogie Ellis Uh, jump shot at the buzzer then USC wins a double overtime game against Oregon State so that game was on the razor's edge and USC did trail relatively late in regulation before managing to force overtime and then USC's down to Oregon uh, by three points with roughly 145 left down by two with 20 seconds left after Oregon hits a go-ahead three-pointer so USC was down, trailing, tied. You know, in, in, in each of those three games were 50-50 balls. USC wins all three. And again, it stops being an accident at some point. You know, <laughs> I mean, you, you could say random results, bounce of the ball, small sample size, but USC keeps winning these games. And USC has done this each of the last two years under Andy Enfield with the Mobley brothers and a band of transfers. I mean, that's really been the formula that you have. You had Evan Mobley as the centerpiece player on last year's team. You have Isaiah Mobley as the centerpiece player on this year's team. And then a lot of the transfers that Andy Enfield has uh, assembled around that Mobley brother. You know, Drew Peterson is a transfer. Chavez Goodwin is a transfer. Boogie Ellis is a transfer. Uh, you, You have so many different moving parts around the Mobley brothers and Andy Enfield has been able to make it work. And let's say this about Andy Enfield, you know, through 2020, there was no question that he was underachieving 
at USC. You know, the, the 2020 team with Onyeka Okongwu, who was a top seven lottery pick in the NBA draft, that team was going to get into the NCAA tournament, but only as like a nine or a 10 seed. And uh, if US, if we didn't have the Pac-12 tournament started in 2020 before the pandemic hit, but it obviously didn't uh, get completed because of the pandemic. If USC had lost in the first round of the Pac-12 tournament in 2020, probably would have been a number 10 seed, maybe even an 11, definitely in the field, but on the back end. Now we're finally seeing USC uh, impose its will on the Pac-12. You know, if USC wins one more game this week, it will it will have won 15 conference games in back-to-back seasons for the first time ever. That 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 is a very special achievement if USC can get it. And the Trojans are now a top six seed. You correctly identified USC as like either a five or a six. That's exactly where the Trojans stand. They're on the border between a five or a six. If they beat Arizona or if they beat UCLA and get some more work done at the Pac-12 tournament, uh, they can rise as high as a four. I mean, that's that, that is still within the realm of possibility. So Andy Enfield, you know, the old the old criticisms of him, maybe they don't necessarily no longer apply in totality, but they certainly don't apply nearly as much today as they used to one of the criticisms of Enfield was that his teams would die in February um they had losing even when USC made the NCAA tournament in 2016 and 2017 and again in 2020 USC would have been in uh USC had losing records in February each of those three seasons last year though six and three in February and this year after the win in Oregon and the sweep of the Oregon schools on the road, seven and one in the month of February. So that is one of the real telltale signs of how USC basketball has gone through an evolution and a distinct transformation. And the special part of this season, no matter what happens in March, I mean, obviously we want USC to make the sweet 16, get to the second weekend. I think that would be an, an amazing result for this team and would certainly build even more enthusiasm. Like that's an important goal. But even if USC doesn't reach that goal, to already be in this spot, 25 and four, winning Pac-12 road games left and right, it is reaffirming the reality that this is not the same old USC of previous years. It's not the same old Andy Enfield of previous years. This is a coach and this is a program which are definitely unquestionably growing and improving uh, each and every year. Well, I want to belabor the point with you because I wonder how much we actually are underestimating USC right now, simply because of these close wins. You know, a lot of talk has been made lately about net rating, quad one, quad two wins, things like that. And, and USC, because of that early, early schedule has a lot of, lower tiered wins uh, on the resume, but you look at when we talk about, you know, possibly a six seed borderline five seed, I just want to run through some of the teams that they're compared to because UCLA against quad one, the best teams is three and four, right? LSU is five and seven. Iowa is one and five. These are all teams that are considered, you know, jockeying for position with USC right now. USC is four and one. 
against quad one teams. So even though they had the easy schedule, when they played the tough teams, other than those two Stanford teams, those two Stanford games, there's no bad losses there. There aren't any bad losses there. Now, we do need to pick apart the quadrant system and the formula attached to that because you can beat a lower-ranked team on the road and get credit for a quad one win, whereas if you beat a higher-ranked team uh, at at home, uh, that that's also a quad one win. So clearly, with the USC's four and one uh, quad one record, uh, that mostly comes from beating somewhat lower-ranked teams on the road. That those are the, the the quad one wins that that USC has mostly gotten. Did beat UCLA at home. That's a home quad one win, but most of that is coming from beating not quite as good teams uh, on the road. Now, UCLA, you know, the, the, the Bruins, they have that shiny win over Villanova early in the season. Uh, and so even though UCLA's overall quad one record, you know, is under 500 and USC is over 500, that's where strength of schedule does come into play. And so as Andy Enfield does try to build USC basketball's brand and its national profile, one thing he will need to do, uh, and, and this doesn't mean he needs to do the same thing every year, but he will eventually need to schedule games against the likes of Villanova, you know, against other really good non-conference teams. And even if you take some swings and you miss, as UCLA has, you know, USC lost to Gonzaga, uh, in its non-conference schedule, playing those games really sharpens you up. And if you hit, and if you make just one of those non-conference uh, opportunities, as UCLA did against Villanova, that increases your overall profile. So you know uh, the uh, coaches and AP polls came out on Monday, as they they do every week during the season, and USC is ahead of UCLA in the polls but the polls really don't determine where you are in the bracket on selection Sunday. UCLA is still a notch or two ahead of USC. I mean, UCLA looks pretty solid for a four seed with, with a ceiling at a three USC is, is between a five and a six with a ceiling of a four. What's the difference? It's, it's that UCLA went over Villanova mostly uh also ucla having split with arizona as well it's the wins at the high end of the spectrum uh that have ucla ahead of usc so uh, for people who think wait we're ahead of you ucla in the polls why aren't we seated higher well because seating resumes bracketology all those kinds of things it really goes to caliber of wins and that's something where usc isn't quite uh, in, in, in the, the the very top tier across the country. And that does play into why the Trojans aren't talked about quite as much as UCLA or other programs across the country. So I wanted to ask you in terms of Pac-12 and the national brand, I know that you've been very big on this in, in the past. How much do you think that, that that gets overlooked? How much does Arizona and UCLA being back to prominence maybe creates a, a, a draft for, for USC to sort of, you know, go along the winds of that? Or do you need those other programs? Do you need Oregon to step up more? Do you need that 
run like they had in the tournament last year with all of them to consistently show Pac-12 basketball matters more like let, let, let's just quote the SEC in football that it just means more out west and and to be able to to push them along uh, on this process. So I'm on record Ian is saying that what's good for the Pac-12 nationally in men's basketball is not what's good for USC. And and the my main reason for that is just look at Arizona. You know Arizona was struggling in the latter years of the Sean Miller uh, era and then gets Tommy Lloyd obviously finds the right coach and, and zooms right back to the top of college basketball's power structure. If we didn't have this, this immediate Arizona resurrection, who would be in line to win the PAC 12 title USC USC would have been in first place. If you don't have uh, Arizona's quick return to prominence so what's good for USC and what's good for the Pac-12 in basketball, two very different things. So in terms of the Pac-12's outlook, uh, it, it needs a good march, not necessarily a great march, but a good march. Like at least, you know, like don't flop. It needs it needs Arizona and UCLA to at least get to the second weekend. Sweet 16, probably with Arizona, since Arizona's going to be carrying a number one or number two seed, you at least need Arizona to make the Elite Eight. And that kind of keeps the conversation going about Arizona being back. But if Arizona and UCLA tumble out on the first weekend, you are not going to hear the end of it from national commentators about the Pac-12. Now, would it be fair? Not necessarily. We all overreact to what happens in March. Uh, a lot of people were saying last year uh, when the Pac-12 went 9-1 and in the opening two rounds and put three teams in the Elite Eight, got UCLA to the final four, there were a number of people who saying, oh, the Pac-12 was underrated all year. And that was an overreaction to what happened in March Madness because I watched the Pac-12 last year and the Pac-12 was not very good last year. That UCLA you know, was stumbling around, lost to Oregon State in the Pac-12 quarterfinals. UCLA was not a particularly good team. But then it got a little bit of that 1983 North Carolina State, 1985 Villanova Magic in March. You know, UCLA was down three points in the final minute to Michigan State in the first four. Like the, the UCLA was in trouble just in terms of getting to that first round Thursday and the round of 64. But but Michigan State committed an and one foul. UCLA tied it, sent it in overtime, then won. You know, that's that's a lot of Jim Valvano 1983 stuff right there. And the Bruins then took off. So we overreact to March both for and against teams and conferences, also coaches. Uh, and so the, so you, you know that the Pac-12 is going to get a river of criticism if Arizona and UCLA don't at least get to the second weekend. But now flipping it to the USC question and the USC perspective on things, anything which erodes the Arizona or UCLA brand that's good for USC because it gives Andy Enfield the ability to say to recruits and to the guys he's hunting in the transfer portal, hey, I'm the big dog in L.A., not, not that Mick Cronin guy over there. And, hey, I'm 5-0 and against Mick Cronin heading into Saturday's game against UCLA at Poly Pavilion. Uh, and then, you know, if Arizona stumbles in the Pac-12 tournament, Enfield is going to say, hey, we've been winning for a couple years now. Arizona had this one great season, but hey, 
if you, you know, if you're deciding between Arizona and USC, where do you want to come to? I, I assemble transfers around uh, elite big men and, and we win and we win a lot and we win consistency consistently. Uh, can you trust that Arizona is going to keep this thing going uh, after one year in which it, in which it wasn't able to deliver the goods in March? So I am on record and, and it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting debate. Like it's not a open and shut case, but I'm on the side of the things that are good for the PAC 12 aren't necessarily good for USC. I think that Andy Enfield in his attempt to get USC to the point where the Trojans are competing for conference championships to number one seeds on an annual basis or something close to that, you need Arizona and UCLA to look worse at least to some degree that gives you an opening with a higher caliber of recruit and with a higher caliber of prospect in the transfer portal. One final point on that, Ian, is that I think the win over Oregon is so huge in part because you you have a lot of people now paying attention to college basketball who weren't paying attention uh, a month ago when Oregon beat USC uh, in Los Angeles. You know, you had the NFL going through February 13th, the latest ever date for the Super Bowl. You had the Olympics, a lot of other stuff going on. But of course, now in American sports, college basketball is the thing. You also have the uh, MLB, Major League Baseball labor problems, you know, if the owner is playing hardball. So college basketball really has the field to itself uh, in terms of the the, the uh, national sports spotlight. And people were watching all the top six teams, tumble on Saturday and then they got to see USC beat Oregon on the road you know that kind of moment with Drew Peterson hitting that clutch three to silence the crowd in Eugene both Dana Altman and Andy Enfield have used the transfer portal to great effect over the years Uh, Enfield a little bit more in recent years but but Altman's been doing it for several seasons at Oregon the, being able to beat Oregon, being able to beat Altman in a game that a lot of people were watching and paying attention to, hopefully that gives USC and Enfield leverage over Altman if they get into a transfer portal battle for an elite player. And you know, we're so we're entering March. We're going to see all the all the conference tournaments. You know, let's remember USC got Chavez Goodwin from Wofford in the Southern Conference. So. Like when you watch something like the SoCon tournament, uh, when you watch the Conference USA tournament, uh, Enfield got Drew Peterson from Rice in Conference USA. As all these conference tournaments happen and as seasons end and players enter the transfer portal, and there were over 1,200 players in the portal at one point last year, with all these prospects about to flood into the portal, everything that USC can do or everything that happens generally in the Pac-12, which erodes Oregon's brand, which erodes Arizona's brand, which erodes UCLA's brand, and thereby erode the Pac-12's brand, that that all works to the advantage of USC. So that is my larger perspective on on the Pac-12 and USC heading into March. Well, it, all, it also helps locally, too, with the Lakers and Clippers playing the way that they are. U, U, USC and UCLA are probably playing better than they are. I'm just stirring the pot and making a joke with that. But uh, I, I wanted to make a larger point um, to you with that is 
let's compare it. I, I, as I was hearing you talk there to the ACC, because I know that you know that league very well as well. And, and so UCLA and Arizona are kind of the way that you're talking like Duke and UNC and, and, and the way that the, the league handles it. And you have certain tiers of teams that play different ways. Miami has built, like you were saying, off of the, the prestige of consistently over the past decade beating Duke and UNC. Those are the pristine wins. They lose against the, the nonsense Virginia Techs of the world. The, the, you have other programs like uh, Virginia that ha- and Wake Forest that have just sort of trotted along. Virginia had one year, you know, that, that was very good or two years when they became the first ever 16-1 upset. But they, they've sort of been your consistent second tier. And then you have your like Florida State and Notre Dames that uh, have tried to be flash in the pans. Like we're going to hit you once and then we'll recede back into the, the shadows and then we'll come back again and then we'll go back uh, into the bottom tier of the ACC. Where, which one of those three is best for USC moving forward in, I don't like a five- 10, 20 year project, which one do you see that being the best way to go? Well, I mean, I think if you're to draw a, let's just draw a best case scenario, not necessarily a likely scenario, but a best case scenario, hopefully USC becomes Virginia, right? Because you had Mike Krzyzewski and Roy Williams lording themselves over the ACC for a very long time. Uh, And you had a situation where, Um, You know, Duke made the final four in 2004. North Carolina makes the final four and wins the national title the next year in 2005. North Carolina wins the national title in 2009. Duke wins the national title in 2010. Duke wins the national title in 2015. North Carolina makes back to back title games in 2016 and 2017. It was so Duke and Carolina had this. Anything you can do, I can do better dynamic under Roy and Coach K. Two coaches, I mean, Roy is already retired. Coach K is you know, going to retire at the end of this season. Virginia and Tony Bennett were able to step into that Duke-Carolina axis of evil and bust it up. Virginia had, that, had, had a run from 2014 through uh, 2020 where it usually won the ACC regular season title. I mean, Virginia was usually the number one seed in the ACC tournament. Virginia was regularly a contender uh, in the NCAA tournament. I mean, won the national title in 2019, but let's not forget, was a number one seed in 2016, led Syracuse by double digits in the Elite Eight in Chicago and choked that game away. Um, You know, if, if that, if Virginia had won that 2016 Elite Eight game against Syracuse, it would have played North Carolina in the national semifinals. Virginia's national profile uh, would have been even greater if it had won that game. But the larger point is, much as in the Pac-12, as you've stated, you have UCLA and Arizona as the Blue Bloods, the brand names. Uh, You had Duke and Carolina. So Virginia was able to bust up uh, the Duke Carolina axis, USC would love to be able to bust up the UCLA Arizona axis. And just to kind of build on what I said earlier, you know, so after 
Roy Williams had you know, lost his great senior class, Joel Berry, Theo Pinson, the other guys who were the core parts of those back-to-back national title game teams, lost to Villanova in the 2016 title game, then won in the 2017 title game over Gonzaga. After that decorated senior class, Carolina slipped. Carolina was not the same team anymore. It's been, it was a real struggle for Roy Williams to reach that same standard. And you saw something similar with Coach K at Duke after the Zion Williamson team of 2019, which came, which fell short of the Final Four, lost to Tom Izzo and Michigan State in the Elite Eight. Duke and Carolina did struggle the past few years, 2020, 2021. You're obviously still seeing North Carolina struggle in the first year under Hubert Davis. North Carolina is squarely on the bubble uh, entering March and probably needs to beat Duke uh, in Coach K's final home game at Cameron Indoor Stadium. Good luck with that, Tar Heels. So the point stands that whether you're talking about Virginia or also Leonard Hamilton's Florida State team, very nearly won back-to-back ACC regular season championships in 2020 and 2021, that's really the USC's path. That is USC's opening. You need the big dogs in your conference, whether it's the Pac-12 or the ACC, to struggle. But Arizona just put all the pieces together this year. You don't want the big dogs to put all the pieces together. You know, UCLA, as I've mentioned in previous weeks, uh, was it's too much was expected of UCLA just because of brand name. Uh, because UCLA made the Final Four, oh, you know, top five, top ten preseason team. But we have to remember that was a number 11 seed. That was a first four team. So actually, I don't think Mick Cronin has failed this season at UCLA. I think it's more a case of USC never should, or UCLA never should have been given top 10 status because when you're an 11 seed one year to go all the way to a number one seed the next season that's usually not how it works uh now as people will say wait well wait look at arizona with tommy lloyd yes and how many times does a first year coach uh inherit a situation and immediately just you know snap his fingers and bring a program to a one seed that's not how it usually works With UCLA, this is how it usually works, that even after a year when you get to the Final Four as a lower seed, that doesn't automatically mean your Final Four caliber uh, the next season. So I think UCLA and Cronin have actually done okay with what they've had, Uh, but the point remains is that UCLA is not at that juggernaut status that a lot of people were ready to give to the Bruins after they made the Final Four and played that classic semifinal uh, against Gonzaga. So that, Ian, works to USC's benefit. It works to USC's benefit that UCLA, no, is not actually all the way back. UCLA is in a good place, but UCLA is not in a great place. And so uh, that, that's kind of a comparison between UCLA, Arizona in the, in the Pac-12 and Duke and North Carolina in the ACC. So USC really could be a Virginia-type profile, or if you want, you could also compare USC to those 2020 and 2021 Florida State teams, which were able to rise to the top tier of the ACC. You can need I, that power vacuum to make it happen. Can I just, just real fast, how much, you, you talked a lot about UCLA and Arizona, obviously so. How much 
I guess, nervousness do you get with Oregon and Colorado looming? Well, I mean, I think this has been a fantastic year for USC relative to Oregon uh, because Oregon might not make the NCAA tournament. Oregon, as I see it, not only has to beat the Washington schools this week, but then the way the Pac-12 tournament bracket is shaping up, we don't have a finalized bracket. That's going to come after all games are played on Saturday. But it's looking as though Oregon's going to be in the top half of the bracket. In Oregon's going to play Colorado most likely in a five versus four uh, quarterfinal. Don't know which seed each team's going to get, but that's we're we're heading toward that scenario most likely. So the winner of that five versus four quarterfinal will have to play top seeded Arizona in the semis. I think Oregon is going to need to beat Arizona in that Pac-12 semifinal to get into the NCAA tournament as an at-large. Now, of course, if Oregon beats Arizona in the semis and then wins the Pac-12 title, well, you've got the automatic bid. But just the bigger picture, if Oregon doesn't make the NCAA tournament, that is great news for USC. Now, it's going to be bad news for George Klyavkov and the Pac-12, who won a fourth NCAA tournament tournament bid but that would be great for usc because again that gives andy enfield a lot of leverage over and against dana altman in the transfer portal and so if you if you're able to beat out oregon for top transfer prospects that's how usc could become this really good program which is a number five seed with a chance to be a four that's how you get to that next step where arizona is as a number one seed or at worst a number two seed. So this, this has been a great season for USC relative to Oregon, also relative to Colorado. Colorado has to win the Pac-12 tournament to get into the NCAA tournament. When, when those programs are failing and you're succeeding, you can just draw a clearer contrast. You can do it very easily. And, and that works to USC's benefit in terms of building that basketball brand and getting to the point where you can you can sell yourself a lot better than other programs. Final point on fi, final point on this, Ian, is that and I, and I've said this before, but it's just worth mentioning it again because some there are some think, concepts you need to keep reintroducing to an audience, especially now that we're in March. So maybe people weren't listening to this podcast uh, in early February when uh, they were focused more on the Rams' run to the Super Bowl. Uh, so in the 1980s, in the mid 1980s, it was a downtime for Pac-10 basketball. UCLA had a bad decade and Arizona was able to walk into that vacuum and build the brand under Lute Olson. And then as soon as Arizona got to that 1988 Final Four with Steve Kerr, Sean Elliott uh, and, and those, the other guys on that team, Matt Muehlbach, um, that was when Arizona was able to turn the corner and become a heavyweight. So USC wants as much of a power vacuum as possible. And the struggles at Oregon really opened the door for USC to get even more leverage in the Pac-12 in the years ahead. Before we go, I wanted to talk about the games this week. And, and like you said, maybe a, a lot of you listening won't hear this before the Arizona match. Um, but will before the UCLA game. Um, and, and so I guess I wonder, USC and UCLA are basically locked into the two and three seed, all but, you know, celebratory at this point. 
How much importance do you put on these? Are these uh, instances for USC to get marquee wins that could improve their resume in the NCAA tournament? It doesn't really matter for the Pac-12 tournament. And how much importance is it like city bragging rights for you? Uh, you know, city bragging rights is definitely important. Uh, I think that, you know, in, in the big picture for, for USC, heading into the final, the final week of the regular season, and then with the Pac-12 tournament just around the corner, of course, hey, on next week's show, just want to say, we're going to bring in the editors of Ducks Wire and Buffalo's Wire for a Pac-12 tournament preview. So you'll want to listen to that next week. But as we just look at the next two weeks here for USC, I think the main thing is you, you got to get one big win. Don't have to get all of them. You just a, at least get one big win, whether it's from the Arizona game now, a potential Arizona meeting in the Pac-12 final, uh, or meeting UCLA this Saturday and then likely in a Pac-12 semifinal uh, on Friday, uh, March 11. You got to get one of those games. I think if USC gets shut out, then that 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 is a dent in the team's confidence heading into the NCAA tournament. As long as it walks away with one high-end win uh, against Arizona or UCLA, this team should be very confident heading into the NCAA tournament. It should also get a reasonably high seed. I think if I do think if USC does get one of those high-end wins wherever they come it should be at least a five seed. And, and if, and if Arizona is that win instead of UCLA, a four. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a four seed instead of a six seed, that obviously improves your odds of getting out of the first round. It obviously improves your odds of getting to the sweet 16. And I've been very consistent in saying this Ian. sweet 16. If the, if the USC can get that far, you get to the second weekend of the NCAA tournament, two straight years and you're able to get to the second weekend without Evan Mobley and Taj Edey, to me, that would be fantastic. Now, of course, maybe a bracket break occurs. You know, maybe USC gets an upset uh, of a higher seed, you know, from another team elsewhere in the bracket. And let's, let's be clear about this. Uh, we'll, we'll obviously talk a lot more about the NCAA tournament when, when we get there in two weeks, but this is not a Gonzaga-Baylor situation. This is not a year in college basketball in which there's one or two teams that are clearly several notches above the field. Last year, Gonzaga and Baylor were way better than the rest of the competition. They both got to the final uh, in early April. We do not have that dynamic this year. I mean, you just look at this past Saturday. Each of the top six teams in the country lost. They all have their flaws. They all have their vulnerabilities. They're not heavyweights on the same scale that Gonzaga and Baylor were. So you, you project this out with USC. Let's say USC is a four. All right. So what if a number one seed loses to an eight or a nine? And then the Trojans are there at number four. They get to the sweet 16 and boom, they have a path to the final four because they get a bracket break. So that is very much in the picture with USC. And that's why if they can just get one of these high end wins over the next two weeks, their seed should be in the four or five range. And that's going to increase the chances that this team can not only make a run, but then get a bracket break, which might lead to a, a March, which exceeds all of our expectations. Can I ask you how, how different is that from the, the pandemic year that, that, you know, the PAC 12 dominated in? 
how, how different is just the idea 2022 of 2022 compared to 2021? Yeah, just the, the idea of lower seeds getting all the way there. UCLA's yeah, so, well, run last year, right? Like, yeah. Well, yeah. As as said that, as I said earlier, that UCLA had like a pixie dust run. It was a, a lot of 1983 North Carolina State with teams such as Alabama, Michigan, Michigan State. You know, making late game mistakes, missing late game free throws. You know, that's how North Carolina State got through uh, its first few games in the 1983 NCAA tournament against Pepperdine. Uh, and then against UNLV, it needed the uh, the opponent to miss late foul shots. Uh, so, like, that's the comparison with UCLA. But in, in terms of this year, you know, this year, what's different about the Pac-12 is that you have known quantities going into the NCAA tournament. I think last year, you know, U- UCLA was not expected to make its run. Obviously, Arizona was completely off the radar screen. Uh, Oregon was a seven seed, so not not in prime position uh, to, to, to make a big run. And, and Oregon was the regular season champion uh, of the Pac-12. And, that, and yet Oregon was a seventh seed. So last, last year, the Pac-12 was really down. Uh, this year, you have Arizona as a heavyweight seed. I mean, you can debate if Arizona is a heavyweight team, but Arizona certainly has earned a heavyweight level seed. And then UCLA is going to be a four, most likely, chance for a three, could drop to a five, but UCLA is going to be going to have a solid seed. So like, you know what you're getting with Arizona and UCLA in terms of, of seeding placement, they're going to have prominent seeding positions. So that's a definite change for the PAC 12. What the PAC 12 doesn't have this year. And it did have last year was more depth and more representation. You had Colorado in the NCAA tournament. You had Oregon state in the NCAA tournament. So you had more chances to bust some brackets, more chances among more schools uh, to make a name for themselves. But this year's Pac-12 has been top heavy. You've had three teams ahead of the other nine all season long. And that that's really uh, the different calculus that we have entering March. I'm interested to see how the Pac-12 tournament impacts seeding. What we think we know now but then compared to not just like next week, but even more importantly, like selection Sunday, almost two weeks from now, the, the idea of USC, like you said, potentially having two games between now and then against both Arizona, two against Arizona and possibly two against UCLA as well. And however they do well in that and how that will dictate what their seeding winds up being between what we think now is like that five, six seed and whether or not they wind up rising to a four, falling to a eight or nine uh, and seeing how they possibly do that. Well, in terms of USC seeding, uh, let's, I think one thing needs to be clear that the, the, in many ways, I mean, the win over Oregon was, was important, but the win over Oregon state was even more important because if you lose that game, to a team that has only three wins, that is a two seed line loss. USC would have fallen two seed lines had it lost to Oregon State. So I think that beating Oregon State, or we could say avoiding a loss to Oregon State, that closed the door in my mind on USC being a number eight seed. USC is not going to fall to an eight under any circumstance. USC could lose out 
USC could lose the rest of its games and, and the, its absolute floor at this point is a seven. If, if that scenario happens, but uh, if USC at least wins its PAC 12 quarterfinal, you know, against an inferior team, its floor should be a six. And then the UCLA and Arizona games, they're not the kinds of games where if you lose, you fall. No, when you're playing teams that are better than you, those are seed enhancement opportunities, not uh, games that which endanger uh, your seed and, and cause you to fall on a seed list. Those are games which can only improve USC's seeding position if it wins. It will not hurt USC's seeding position uh, if it loses. So the fascinating question you bring up, Ian, uh, indirectly is, wow, what if USC beats Arizona twice? And that would mean that USC wins the Pac-12 tournament in addition to beating Arizona. If that happens, USC might be in play for a three seed. Now, I mean, I, 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 I've been saying that USC's ceiling is a four. I think that's the realistic ceiling. But you could make a case that if USC beats Arizona, and again, we'll see what happens on, on Tuesday, uh, and then wins the Pac-12 tournament, which would ma- require beating Arizona in the final, because USC and Arizona, they're going to be on the opposite sides of the Pac-12 tournament bracket. If USC beats Arizona in the regular season and then uh, wins the Pac-12 tournament by going through UCLA and Arizona to do it, a three seed is not entirely uh, out of the question. I, I so, think that you would. I think that you would need some chaos in like the Big Ten, the SEC tournament, the Big Twelve tournament. Probably. You'd probably need some upsets there for that. Probably. Right. But uh, here's the other thing: even if USC doesn't get all the way up to a three, if you if you're the strongest four seed, uh, or at least a stronger four seed, uh, and you're close to the weakest uh, number three seed. You're going to get placed in the region with the weaker number one seed. So that means, you know, you're not going to be with Gonzaga. You're probably going to be with Kansas. And USC crushed Kansas last year in the NCAA tournament. I think if you if you were to say right now to a USC fan, okay, we're, we're going to be a four seed. Which number one seed do you want to be bracketed with in the Sweet 16? Kansas would probably be high on the list. You'd probably prefer to be in a region with Kansas instead of uh, certainly Gonzaga, probably also Auburn. I think that the, 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 the length that Auburn has on defense could be really bothersome uh, for USC. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're a strong four seed instead of a weak four seed, that means you're going to be in a region where the number one seed is not uh, as strong uh, as in other regions. So even if your your actual seed isn't changing, strong four versus weak four, there is value to be had in that. All right, so Ian, uh, once again, next week we're going to have Ducks Wire and Buffalo's Wire with us to preview the Pac-12 tournament. It's that time of year. We're talking about brackets. We're talking about tournaments. It's a really fun time before we get to uh, USC football spring practice with Lincoln Riley, which is obviously going to be a big point of interest. So Ian, thanks so much, uh, for, for once again, riding along with me this week, we're going to see you next week on the latest edition of the Trojans wired podcast.